Amen and amen. What a good morning so far. So good, right? So good. Well, welcome to 2017. It's been a good year so far. We're one week into it, right? And uh, according to Statistic Brain, statisticbrain.com, a site that I've never actually been to before this week, about 41% of Americans will engage in some sort of New Year's resolution. Here's the list that they provide of the top 10. I have no idea if their research is sound, but these sound about right. Okay, so number one, lose weight, healthier eating. Number two, life self-improvement. Number three, better financial decisions. I think these are the 2017 ones and the 2016 ones and the 2015 ones. I think these are perennial New Year's resolutions, right? So by show of hands, uh, in the first service, I was actually surprised. By show of hands, how many of us in this room engaged in a New Year's resolution this year? Almost none. That's amazing. You people, that's like you are the 59% or whatever is opposite of 41%. Well, welcome, welcome to that. Uh, you know, I... I, uh, I have engaged in New Year's resolutions in the past, and I have again this year. Um, but the problem with New Year's resolutions, of course, is that I don't want to actually do the work. To, I want change in my life, but I don't actually want to do the work of changing anything in my life so that I can experience that change in my life. Does that make sense, right? Like, I want to lose weight. Who doesn't? But I don't want to eat, change my eating patterns. I don't want to change my diet patterns. So how is that going to work out for me? Not well because of the donut line. <laughs> well, we, we're in the series together, as Brandon mentioned, called This Kind. And we're basically looking at how Jesus lived and, and how he called us to live and how to live with his power in this life. And we're doing that by walking through uh, a story from the book of the Gospel of Mark from chapter 9, starting in verse 14. And for those of you who weren't here last week when we kicked this off, I want to recap just briefly. It says that uh, when... Jesus and Peter and James and John came back. It doesn't tell us where they came from if you start in verse 14. But it simply says, when they came back, they encountered these other disciples. And they discovered that around the disciples was this large crowd. And the crowd was arguing. There's these religious leaders who were arguing. And everyone's arguing. And into that mess, Jesus steps and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. Everybody hold on. What's going on here? And a father comes forward. A father who had brought his son. His son who was possessed by an evil spirit. And his father had asked that he come and, and be healed. And this isn't new in the book of Mark, this sort of story. In fact, all through the book of Mark, in the previous eight chapters, you see stories of people who are evil spirit-possessed or demon-possessed who come and who experience healing and restoration. So this type of story isn't new. What's new in this story is that it doesn't work. Okay, they, they, they bring, the, 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 the father brings the, the son, but Jesus is gone. And so the man had asked the disciples if they would cast out this evil spirit. And they had done this countless times throughout the rest of the book as well. They had been doing this throughout the book. But for some reason, this time it didn't work. And it should have. The author of Mark is really, really clear that throughout the entire story, Jesus has authority over all things. He has authority over the wind and the waves. He has authority over sickness and death, authority over the evil spirits. And the author is really clear that Jesus has given that very same authority to his disciples so that they can do the same things that he has done. I'm sorry, Holly. Have I said? All right. <laughs> it's a scary story. Uh, first in Mark chapter three, it says afterwards, Jesus went up to the mountain and called out to the ones that he wanted to go with him. And they came to him and then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority 
to cast out demons. These are the 12 that he chose. And it goes on to list Peter and James and John and all 12 of those disciples. But he gave them the authority. Then again in chapter 6 it says, Then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people. And he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two. Here we go. Giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. The author's made it really clear. He wants us to know that, that Jesus had this authority and that he gave that very same authority to his disciples and that it was working. That they were going around traveling and teaching and preaching and healing and casting out evil spirits. But this time, they weren't able to do it. Why? Well, now Jesus is back and, and the father of this boy comes to him and he says, please help us if you can. And Jesus replies, if I can, of course I can. It says, when Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. So Jesus commands the spirit to leave and the evil spirit leaves and and the boy is healed. Once again, Jesus sort of saves the day and he does what the disciples were unable to do. And for the disciples, that probably had to sting just a little bit. It says afterwards, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Now, it doesn't say it in the text, of course, but I have to wonder in that moment if the disciples were like, wait a minute, how come it worked when he did it? I mean, we did all the things we were supposed to do, uh, you know, and we look like idiots. And he comes in and does the exact same thing we did, and it works for him. What gives? And to a certain extent, I think that's maybe even fair. Jesus had given them authority and they had been traveling all over the country performing healings and casting out demons and suddenly for whatever reason they can't. Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. Now again, it doesn't give any indication of this in the text, but I wonder if for them, if for those first disciples that heard this, that might have been sort of a strange response. I mean, we've heard this story perhaps before and so we know how it ends. We know where, what he says. But for them in this moment, I think it would have been strange. I think perhaps for them in this moment, they would have already had been praying as, as this father comes forward, as the crowd is watching, as these religious leaders are watching and they are doing all the things that they've always done and have always worked. And suddenly they aren't. I got to think they were praying like, please God, let this work. Plus for Jesus to answer about prayer at all in this instance would have been rather unexpected. In every other healing account in the book of Mark, Jesus points to faith as the primary, the the necessary ingredient for healing to happen. But for some reason here, he points to prayer. In Mark 2, for instance, Jesus is preaching in the super packed out house. And these four guys come to him and they they bring their friend who's paralyzed. And the house is so full, the crowd is so big around the house that they can't bring him in. And so they climb up on the roof and they literally dig a hole through the roof and they lower their friend down to Jesus as he's preaching. And rather than being interrupted or being annoyed or, or, or putting them off, Jesus sees their boldness as a sign of their faith. It says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus heals him and he walks and he points to faith as the reason he responded. When Jesus calms the wind and the waves, he gently chides the disciples for their terror saying, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? His concern is about their faith to the bleeding woman who is healed by simply touching his robes. He says, daughter, your faith 
has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. To Jairus, whose daughter is dying, who pleads with Jesus to heal her, and then finds out that it's too late and his daughter has already died, Jesus simply says, don't be afraid, just have faith. And he brings her back to life. Faith is the key component in all of these stories. It's the activating component in, in these stories and so many more. But in this story, when Jesus, uh, when Jesus is asked by his disciples what they did wrong, Jesus doesn't question their faith. He points instead to prayer. I think it's also interesting when you read back through this story, and I encourage you to do that, that nowhere in the story does Jesus actually pray. That's weird, right? And he says, this kind only comes out through prayer, but then he doesn't pray and instead simply commands the spirit to leave as he had done in other places. So what were the disciples supposed to do with that? Like, you said it was only by prayer and then you didn't pray. <laughs> that would have left a question for them. And I think it leaves a question for us. Uh, what does this even mean? What is Jesus referring to here? And I think in order to get there, we need to look at the bigger picture, the bigger story, the story that is before the story. Yes, the story never says that Jesus prayed as he was casting out this demon, but the story doesn't really start at verse 14 as we are often told this story. In actuality, I think this story, I think Jesus' reference to prayer actually starts at the very beginning of the book, the very beginning of Mark, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. What always preceded Jesus' ministry, always, was this idea of going away from the crowd, going away from the noise, from the urgent, from, from the hustle and the bustle. And spending concentrated time away with his father, with God in prayer and in communion. This idea of Jesus going away from the crowds, of going away into the wilderness, was absolutely central, a hallmark of his ministry. In chapter 1, the author of Mark tells us, very, very briefly, he introduces us to Jesus. He says he's the Messiah. He says he's baptized by John the Baptist. But then by verse 12, that's, that's the end of that story. And it says this. Then the spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. Before Jesus chooses his disciples, before Jesus does any miracles, any teachings, any healings, any exorcisms, any ministry at all, the very first thing that Jesus does is to go into the wilderness, to spend that time, that concentrated time with the Father. And only then, having been filled by the Father, being filled by the Spirit, does Jesus begin his ministry of preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. And then he does all of those within the first chapter of Mark and throughout the rest of the book of Mark. But even in that first chapter, before we even finish that first chapter, verse 35 says, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Again, I mean, before we've even finished the first chapter of ministry, Jesus is again pausing, stopping, going away to be with the Father, to an isolated place where he was away from the hustle, the bustle, the urgent Throughout all of the Gospels, throughout all of the stories of Jesus, we see this pattern in his life of regularly going away and being with the Father. And here we see it in this story as well. You see, the story of the demon-possessed boy doesn't start in verse 14 with the arguing crowd or the panicked father or the disappointed disciples or the smug religious leaders. It starts at the beginning of the chapter. It starts with Jesus going to be with his Father. It says, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. It's also interesting that most of these stories of Jesus going off into the wilderness or going off up a mountain, most of the time he's going by himself. But in this case, he includes these three disciples, these core, these inner circle friends. 
And as a result, these three disciples got to experience the curtain being pulled back. They got to experience that other reality, the spiritual realm, the spiritual dimension. They got to see the transfiguration of Jesus, the glory of God. They got to see Moses and Elijah. They got to have a glimpse into that other world, the kingdom of God, that realer existence that we so rarely get to see with our modern eyes. They had seen Jesus heal. They had seen Jesus cast out demons. But now Jesus wanted them to see what it's like to encounter the Father, to meet with the Father, to spend time with God. He wanted them to have the mountaintop experience with the Father that was so vital, so central to his ministry. Jesus' invitation to them was not simply to pray, but to be in a lifestyle of prayer, a rhythm of prayer, constantly reconnecting with the Father. I think in this, he's saying, if you want to do what I can do, you must live like I live. The story of the demon-possessed boy experiencing freedom and healing doesn't start in verse 14. It starts on the mountain. It starts with the Father. It starts with prayer. Jesus knew the value, and he modeled the pattern of regularly going to the mountain, literally and figuratively, to meet with his Father, to experience the Father, to be filled up by the Father and his Spirit. So that he could then return to ministry, return to the real world, the kingdom of this world, and bring that light, that hope, that power, fully prayed up and ready to come for whatever came next. My brother-in-law, Kevin, is a St. Paul cop, and he does a great job at what he does. And I remember now several years ago when he was going through the police academy and through the training and, they, and he would tell us these stories of all the different training things that they did. You know, they had boot camp where they did this physical strength training so that they would be physically ready to face the challenges that they would be facing. They, they did driving training so that they would learn to actually handle these amazing, powerful cars that they were going to have to use for high-speed chases. They did shooting training so that they'd be able to handle their weapons. And so they did all these physical things, but they also did a lot of like emotional and mental work if you know what I'm saying. Basically, they were saying there are you know, drills that were designed to prepare them to run into a burning building or, or to enter into a domestic violence situation or an active shooter situation. And they would run these drills over and over and over until it was just second nature. And all of it mattered because you can't wait till you're in a high-speed pursuit to learn to drive a car. You can't wait until you get the call about an active shooter to decide if, how you want to respond. You just have to respond. You can't wait until the building's on fire to decide to go in and save lives. If you wait, you would never do it. It has to be second nature. And so they trained, and they continue to train so that at any moment they're ready to respond. And I think that's a lot like what Jesus is pointing to here when he says this kind only comes out through prayer, what he is teaching and what he is modeling the disciples didn't know what when they went up that mountain. They didn't know what they'd be coming back down to. They had no idea what Jesus was inviting them to. They thought they were simply going on a prayer excursion. I think that's true for all of us. I don't think any of us in this room knows what today holds, what tomorrow holds. Are we prayed up? Have we spent the time? Jesus regularly went up the mountain so to speak, to be with the Father, do we? I think that's the question, a couple of questions that I've wrestled through this week. Do you, do I have that mountaintop place? The isolated place where we can go away from the crowds, away from the noise, away from the kids, and simply spend time 
with the Father. Time experiencing intimacy with God. Time being filled with God's Spirit. Experiencing that greater reality of having the curtain pulled back in little ways. Do we have that place? And then number two, do we go there? Is our life so full and so completely just busy that we, that we never can even spend time going there? And if we don't, why not? Why don't we? One of the just awesome parts of being a pastor is you get to work out your own hypocrisies and shortcomings in front of a crowd. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so glad you're all here to hear this. Uh, the truth is I, I don't really have that place. Uh, there've been seasons that I have, uh, but right now in this season of life, I don't really have that place. And I don't go there, frankly, very often. The truth is it's hard for me. The, this idea of really carving that out in life is hard. Uh, and I'm guessing I'm not alone in that, in this space. This room is too full uh, to know that there's not someone else out here who wrestles with this. And so this week I got to ask myself, if I really believe this stuff, if I'm really going to get up and talk about this stuff, I have to at least do the work of wrestling through. Why don't I spend more time? If this stuff really matters the way it seems to, according to this story, why am I not doing it more? And I came up with a couple of things that that were helpful for me. And hopefully you can see yourself in them as well. First of all, this is in your notes. I think a lot of times we feel like prayer is unproductive. And part of that's just personality and style or whatever, but I'm a busy guy. I like moving. I like doing, I like just working hard. I mean, that's just kind of how I roll. My, my, my motto is sort of like better busy than bored. You know, if I'm at a party, I'd rather be in the kitchen working than in the, in the, the living room, hanging out, you know, in the Jesus or the, the Mary and Martha story, if you're familiar with that, I'm which I'm whichever one was in the kitchen. I don't even remember, but whichever one was in the kitchen, that's me. <laughs> you know, I like moving, moving. I, I, I like doing for God. More than I like being with God. It's uncomfortable for me. And like I said, my life is full. All of our life is full. And I don't know where I'd even carve out a mountaintop experience most of weeks. But I think it's interesting to note where we do carve out and the things that we do carve out time for in our lives, right? We carve out lots of time for entertainment. I do. We carve out lots of time for work. We carve out lots of time for youth sports. We carve out lots of time for physical fitness. I mean, I don't. But I'm sure many, many of you do. I'd love to say that I don't go to the gym because I'm praying, (laughs) but it's simply not true. I don't go to the gym because I don't really value physical fitness, right? I mean, I may say that I do, but if I'm not acting on it, I don't really value it. I don't go to the gym because I value sleeping or watching TV or whatever more than I value physical fitness. How about you? If you look at your weekly calendar, if you look at your monthly calendar, if you look at 2016, how does the way you spent your time speak to what you really truly value? Not your new year's resolutions from last year, but, but looking at your time, where, where your values really lie. If I'm honest, I think I value prayer about the same as I value my personal fitness. If I look back at the last year, I think it's one of those things where you say, you know, boy, God, I I hope I get better at this someday, but right now my life's really busy. I'm sure God understands. I think the other thing that at least in my life is true is that sometimes I feel like prayer is just unnecessary. I mean, the truth is a lot of the times when we pray, it's like we pray that we're going on a trip that God would keep us safe. And that's, that's awesome. But the truth is we're probably going to be safe anyway. 
And the truth is we live pretty privileged lives here in this country and in this world. And, and so a lot of times it just doesn't feel like prayer is all that necessary. I mean, a lot of the problems that I do have, at least from my perspective, are mostly just lack of discipline on my part. I mean, if I was just better with finances or, or better with my health habits or my eating habits, or if I just lost weight, or if I, if I just made better New Year's resolutions, most of those things would be resolved anyway. It's not spiritual stuff, so why pray about it? And speaking of spiritual stuff, I mean... Spiritual warfare, is that even real? I've never been called on to do an exorcism. I'm guessing most of us in this room have never been called on to do an exorcism. And when we start actually looking at these passages about demon possessions and all of these things, I think it's much easier for most of us to just kind of dismiss them. To say, well, I mean, that was like 2,000 years ago. Those were primitive people. They didn't understand, you know, about mental illness. They didn't understand about physical ailment. And so they called stuff like epilepsy demon possession. That's far more comfortable for me, but that's not the story that Mark is telling. I think that is the perspective of our 21st century kind of postmodern scientific Western perspective. It's an easy conclusion to come to, but it's worth noting that in most of the world, for most of human history, People have had a much more developed understanding of this sort of spiritual plane, this spiritual existence, this spiritual realm that exists that we simply don't touch very often. We are the ones who are out of line in that perspective with history and with the world. We sort of live in this material world and we're comfortable operating on sort of that physical material plane. And for most of us, we, we live simply unaware that there is this other dimension, this other spiritual plane that exists just outside of reach. The spiritual plane then is relegated to the stuff of legend and lore. It's the stuff of Hollywood movies and of old Bible stories. But it doesn't really exist in the real world, right? Kevin Spacey in the classic uh, film, The Usual Suspects, uh, has a quote that I absolutely love. And he's actually kind of misquoting Charles Baudelaire. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. They're both scary characters, aren't they? <laughs> a little bit. We live in this physical world like it's the only reality. And if there is no greater reality outside of this, if there is no spiritual good or spiritual dark, then why bother praying? I think perhaps part of why Jesus took his disciples with him up on this mountain trip is so that they would be able to see the curtain pull back to see the spiritual plane, the spiritual realm that really exists. They could see that themselves and they could report that back to us so that we and they could experience the reality that is so much more than our modern eyes can see. And in seeing that, their perspective and our perspective and ultimately our lives would be transformed. N.T. Wright in the book Mark for Everyone says it this way. Western culture is increasingly realizing what most other cultures have never forgotten that the world we live in has many layers, many dimensions, and that sometimes these dimensions, normally hidden, may appear. Then, like a child with a microscope, we can look for a moment into that different reality, gasp with wonder, and ever afterwards see everything differently. When that curtain is pulled back, when we get to see and encounter God. I think ultimately what I came to this week is that it doesn't really matter why I don't pray or why you don't pray, why we don't go to that mountaintop place. It doesn't really matter. But if we don't, then there's so much that God has for us that we are missing out on. There is so much of a reality that we simply don't ever see because we've crowded it out. 
I want to experience the life that Jesus has for me. I want for us as a church to experience the life that Jesus has for us as well. And Jesus seems to be saying that prayer is an integral component of that. That spending time with the Father is absolutely central to experiencing God. Prayer is central to experiencing God. That's in your notes. And I know that if I don't make any changes to my current patterns, to the patterns of 2016, that I won't get to experience God. This isn't a should. This isn't a must. I'm saying for my sake and for yours, we should. I said it wasn't a should. We must. I said it wasn't a must. There's so much we're missing out if we don't. So here's some things I'm doing in 2017. Maybe they're New Year's resolutions. I don't know. But if I had a New Year's resolution, it would be something like this. I want to make more room for hearing God in my life. I know that sounds almost embarrassingly simple, like you're a pastor, you should come up with something more profound than that. But I think in my life, at least, this is the piece that is often missing for me spiritually. And maybe you've nailed this, but I'm guessing many in the room haven't. Our lives are so full that they crowd out any space we have to even hear God. And, and oftentimes we blame God. Like, why is God silent? He's probably not. We're probably just not listening. So I'm going to invite you into this experiment with me to identify areas in your life where you can make more room to hear God, to spend time with God, to go to the mountain. This week, I canceled Netflix. Turns out you can do that. I thought it was a lifelong contract, but I think my kids might, have, might argue that I could have just stopped using it <laughs> instead of canceling it for the whole family. Um, but my wife and I talked about it, and this is a decision we made together. It's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with Netflix. There's a lot of great stuff on there, but the truth is we were investing time as a family there that I would rather have us invest doing something that's even more important and even better than that. I got rid of several apps on my phone. None of them were bad content or anything like that, but I just realized that my phone was in my hand the instant I wasn't occupied with work or something else. It was the first thing I did. It, it was when I was you know, laying with my kids at bedtime. I had my phone out. While I'm watching Netflix, I have my phone out doing something else. It was the first place I went. And there's nothing wrong with you know, Facebook or Instagram or any of the social media necessarily, but it shouldn't be the first place I go. Instead of laying with my kids at bedtime, ignoring them and checking Facebook, I want to lay with them and talk with God about them. Listen to God about them. Pray over them. It's crazy to think that I've been missing that opportunity just so that I could view people's vacation pictures of people I don't even know. And and I can feel worse about my own life for having seen them. (laughs) That's crazy. And what I've missed out on because I haven't taken the opportunity to pray over my kids the way that I could. I've realized that my time is way too precious to be spent on my phone or any other piece of technology. I think maybe that's the key for what this can look like in my life and perhaps in yours. Creating a lifestyle of prayer isn't just about being quiet and reflective and sitting in a dark room praying silently. The goal isn't that we would go to the mountaintop and just stay there and escape this world and always be away with God. The idea is that we would go and be so filled up and so experienced that the character of God and the nature of God and the love of God, that we could then bring that experience back into our everyday lives, into our, our workplaces and into our parenting and into our marriages and, and into these moments of life. It's what the Apostle Paul referred to as prayer without ceasing. Prayer that permeates every task of life. A constant contact with the Father. 
I was talking to Brandon this week, and he, he called it being awake to God. And I love that idea. We are so easily lulled to sleep by the things and the patterns of this world. But this idea of having the Holy Spirit awaken us, making us aware of what he is doing, what he is speaking, what he is wanting us to do in this world. And the biggest thing we can do is remove the distractions and the clutter so that we are doing everyday life ready to receive from God. And so that's my New Year's resolution. A year from now, I can report on how it went. But one of the big differences for me, at least for this New Year's resolution over some of the other ones that I've done in the past is that this is one that I am not doing on my own. I'm doing it with you. I'm doing it with my friends. I'm doing it with my wife and my family. They know that this is true. And so they can hold me accountable. They can encourage me. They can ask me how it's going. But maybe more profoundly, this is one that I'm not doing on my own because I'm doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the pieces of this story from Mark 9 that, that is at my absolute favorite is that there's a point at which the father is talking to Jesus and he asks, if you can, and Jesus says, of course I can. Anything is possible for the man who believes. And the man turns to him and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think there's so much grace in that. I think there's so much hope in that. I think we have permission then to say the same thing. God, I want to be changed. But help me to overcome my love of the status quo. God, I want to be changed, but help me to overcome my fear of change. God, I want to be changed, but help me overcome my complacency. Help me overcome my addiction to technology, my addiction to stimulus, to distraction. God, I want you. Help me to want you more. I think there's a lot of good news in this story. I mean, the disciples didn't get it in that moment. But as we continue to watch them, the story doesn't end, and the story continues to grow and to develop. And through the rest of the Gospels, we see them more and more living into this reality. And by the book of Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament, we see the, the disciples doing these things that were beyond what even Jesus had done, raising the dead and healing the sick and, and simply walking by them in their very shadow healing. Beyond their dreams. Because they had learned to live in this reality, live lifestyles of being connected to the Holy Spirit. They were healing and casting out demons, living in this power. Can we? It's 2017. Are you willing to make even small changes so that you might begin to experience this life? We're one week into it, but it's not too late to make some resolutions. I'm taking the steps, little small steps, imperfect steps, but I'm saying, God, help me. Will you? One of the things we've been talking about a lot as we've been planning and, and talking about what do we do on Sunday mornings? What is big church really about? Is, is beginning to try to model some of these things. You know, in a life that is so full of commotion and noise, it's easy to come to church and just have an hour of noise, an hour of messages, an hour of song. And so I want to do something right now that we don't do often that I do very rarely in my own life. I want to spend just a few moments in silence. A few moments of just going to God even now and saying, God, let this be a mountaintop moment. God, I want to believe. I want to change. Help me. So we'll spend a few minutes, a few moments, it won't be minutes, a few moments doing that. And then I'll end by praying and by talking. I encourage you into that.
Father God, it's hard for many of us in this room, for me certainly, um, to be in silence. It's uncomfortable. Uh, we are used to and even have grown to like the constant barrage of information, the constant barrage of sounds and stimulus. God, we acknowledge that it is going to be by your power and your power alone that we're able to make any inroads into changing that. We acknowledge, God, that it is only through your power that we are going to be able to begin to experience the life that you have for us and bring that life to others. So, God, we pray this morning as a body that you would begin to change us, mark us, make us a people that are marked by your, your life, your kingdom, your power, that are marked by the time we spend with you. And we acknowledge that we have not made that a priority. God, I repent of that. Help us to love you more. We ask you in the name of Jesus and by your power, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.